We're about to have a conversation with Bill Berry, a man who's been on the show many times over the years. And uh, as many of you know, he was direct, retired director of labor studies at the Community College of Baltimore County and author of Union Strategies for Our Times and From First Contract to First Contract. First Contact to First Contract, <laughs> excuse me, a union organizer's handbook. And his latest book is an amazing piece of work. It's called The 1877 Railroad Strike in Baltimore. And we're talking to him in the midst of the time when it happened in 1877. And, Bill, welcome back. Good to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. So I'm just amazed, first of all, because one of the things about this time in this book, um, and you've eloquently talked about it in the book, is that whenever – and you write about this in the book – whenever you hear about – if you do ever hear about the 1877 strike – it's called a riot. It's called a mob action, destroying the city of Baltimore, destroying the nation. I didn't realize destroying the nation until I read your book, but destroying the city of Baltimore. Oh, it's destroying the Paris Commune. Right. The revolution is attacking the United States. The very right. fundamental structure of industrial America is threatened. But you, even you said even the, the our story, Enoch Pratt, on whose board I sit, even in their card catalog you describe that it's described under riots. Exactly. Not under – labor struggle or local history or right so what is that about well i think it's it's the slurs on the labor movement that we see today and it was an enormous social event and as i said i started writing it after we had a historical marker erected at camden yards last the, year it's the picture in the book you have there. yes right. and the maryland state historical trust one of the issues that i had always tried to believe is labor history needs to be visible because workers today who are organizing, whether they're organizing at Hopkins Hospital or at Foxconn or at uh, VW in Chattanooga, are looking at lessons from the past, as we all do in our experiences, and uh, what worked and what didn't work. And the 1877 strike has been greatly overlooked. So we tried to put up this marker. We did have the state put up the marker. And what got me started was when people said, what strike? I didn't know there was a strike here. Right. And even as recently as yesterday, there was a commemoration on a labor history calendar which says the strike started in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is just factually not true. (laughs) And uh, I'll defend – Even a labor calendar. (laughs) I'll defend the honor of Baltimore. It's a very common mistake. Uh And so I just thought that – Because – excuse me. Because Martinsburg, I mean according to your book, was also a major focus of the strike. And by the afternoon of the first day, it had just exploded. People were stopping trains and uncoupling trains and were going – being arrested and the militia – at midnight of the first day in West Virginia was called out. And that was the beginning of the military intervention by the employers and the state in the strike. It eventually becomes federal intervention. But it was a strike that just had enormous impact. And it was one of three strikes which were going on in Baltimore at that time. And what's interesting in the history is that then as now, workers, American workers, are right at the edge of a new era. And at that time, they were just really coming into the industrial period. And the other strikes were really the old workshop system. They were box makers and canners, men who made cans and other ones who filled them with oysters. And they were little small shops, some of them three or four people, 12 people, little back alleys in Baltimore, as opposed to this enormous industry, which eventually had 100,000 people on strike and hundreds of thousands of more supporting it. American workers today are trying to deal with the global economy. 
with global employers work right. being shifted. And we have a national trade union structure. And it, people talk about globalism, but they really haven't made it a reality. And so I think that how the workers of 1877 dealt with this change and all of the turmoil that went on during the strike, the craft unions, which were organized by skill, the brakemen, the firemen, the engineers. At the same time, there was a group trying to organize an industrial union, the trainmen's union, which said craft unionism doesn't work. It's something that was fast-forwarded to the 1930s when John L. Lewis got up and said, we can't have craft unions, we need industrial unionism. So it's a long, I hate to use the, borrow the expression from Martin Luther King, the arc of history, but it really is. And so I think looking at how it started here at an absolute crisis and a turmoil. So let's, talk about the, let's talk about the moment that it was in. We're talking about the strike that happened in 1877. Started here in Baltimore. Right. It was a national strike yes. against this burgeoning national industry called the railroad that has taken over America. Yes. So take us to that moment before we talk about how the strike erupted. You, 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 you talk, A, about the growth of railroads in America being this dominating American political life and just dominating American life and leading to this 1873 depression like right. we just had in 2008. Exactly. That struck in 1873, Exactly. Right? And what, so, so how did they grow? What, What's this history about the railroads? Because it's mythical. As the Walt Whitman poem, it's a mythical thing. Well, it became history. the first nationwide industry, and so therefore it became the first national strike, even though it was not one company. But it was um, industries that had moved, 1869, Promontory Point, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad stimulated by the Civil War. And it was a huge two-part industry. One of them was constructing the railroads. And I talk about in the book the history of Irish immigrants working on the tracks and in the 1830s and 40s having labor disputes with contractors for the B&O over not being paid. Uh, there were also conflicts among the workers over men from different counties in Ireland. They were very protective. So if you weren't from county down, they wouldn't let you work on a particular crew. It was, it's a really unique immigrant history, which is certainly part of the railroads. But they grew. They created the steel industry. Uh, they began to create the communications industry, you know, the first telegraph message from Camden Yards of Washington. But during the strike, both the strikers and the railroads very effectively had almost instantaneous communication. And you look at the hmm. Occupy movement with uh, Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And it was early here. So that you will see copies, for example, in the B&O Museum uh, archives of telegraph messages from John Garrett to the president of the United States and back. That's how they communicated. But the workers were able to do it. And they had access to the telegraph lines, would listen in on what the company was doing, would send their own messages and uh, when things got really tough, they would just cut the line. So the companies then had no way to communicate. So many effective – what you're looking at uh, – and we had this discussion last week about the Johns Hopkins strike. How do you create leverage? How do you get that employer to do what he doesn't want to do in dealing with the union? And the railroad workers on the fly were figuring this stuff out. They had tremendous support from the communities large numbers of unemployed workers, and as you noted how the strikers were vilified, 
the unemployed workers were all called tramps and rubble and riffraff, and these were simply unemployed workers riding the rails, as they did in the 30s, looking for work, but very sympathetic. And the panic of 1873 provided the opportunity, just as the Depression of 2007 provided the opportunity for employers to come and cut wages and benefits. Which is what they did. And even though the financial reports for the B&O for 1876, early 1877, showed a greater profit than ever. They instituted one 10 percent wage cut in late um, 1876. And then in uh, second week of June, the board of trustees get together, regular meeting, and they say, well, we got to have another 10 percent cut. And they had combined jobs. They had reduced rates. One of the things that the B&O did was to eliminate what's called the deadhead. And the deadhead is when you were assigned to train to ride to Cumberland, for example. Normally, you would be able to get the next train back. You weren't working, but you would deadhead home if you're living in Baltimore. B&O eliminated that. So if you were a brakeman or a fireman or even an engineer, took a train to Cumberland, you then had to either stay over at your own expense or pay the B&O, your employer, to ride back to Baltimore. Even though you were unemployed. Even though, no, you were employed, but you're not working. That's what I'm saying, you're not working, so you're not paid for that time. That's correct. And you, you wrote about how the, I guess it was the engineers, the people who, who they would be paid only for the time they worked in the yep. train, then they had to wash the train, clean yep. it, get it ready, well, yep. weren't paid for that time. Yep. And that was kind of the, yep. how they re- managed so the place. I think Walmart invented wage theft. B&O invented it and, and practiced it. So there were many of these indignities. One of the things that happened right before the strike was that many of the workers were having their paychecks attached because they owed people. They owed rent and things like that. B&O passed a policy saying if your check is garnished, in effect, you can't work here. So it was a contradiction. That is, you were not making enough to pay all your debts, and so your check was attached. And so the B&O's solution for it was to give you no work whatsoever. And the B&O board of directors said, we're going to do another 10%. They were so confident that the workers would cheerfully concur, is the language that they used in their uh, minutes, that they didn't even schedule a meeting for July or August. They said, oh, everybody's going to be home at their summer places for the uh, period, and so we're not going to bother. And of course, the Monday following, down at Camden Yards, about 25 firemen said, we're not going to do it. And it spread. It spread through Baltimore. It spread to Martinsburg. It went to large railheads like Chicago, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Chicago, general strike in St. Louis, and then to tiny, small railheads, small unions, small employers. Everybody got in the idea that we're not going to take these pay cuts anymore. So the interesting thing to me was about this, we're talking about, I mean, I really... This book is so chock full of stuff. I have to go through it again slowly and really get to all of it. But you, 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 what you said here is an industry like the railroad industry in America, which is you, you point out, there's a piece in here where you point out that um, about all the kind of powerful people who actually owned our political system, yep. uh, paid by the railroad. Uh, um, or worked directly. Tom Scott was a senator from Pennsylvania. Who worked for... 
He, he, owned, he was the president of Pennsylvania Railroad. You, you wrote, being no officers were, con, con, yeah. were conceded the right of eminent domain yeah. for any land in the corporation stock. 15,000 shares after shares were given to the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore, were considered in personal estate and thus exempt from state taxes. And the James McCullough Speaker of the House was a former bank speculator and later lobbyist for B&O and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and so, but you, but you yes. go through all this and all these huge names in Maryland. Well, look at Roger Brook Taney and Francis Scott Key representing They were the lawyers for the railroads. Absolutely. So, um, so the, 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 this idea that – and Alex Brown. Mm-hmm. You remember Alex Brown and the company back then had these meetings and they became Alex Brown of today. And That's they right. were the investment firm that made John, money off of slavery Johns, and Hopkins, the cotton gins. And they invested in this railroad world sure. with all the slave money. So – it's that to me the, the question of power you write about with railroads in the 19th century is so much akin to where we are today. Well, I also think the memory of it, and one of the things I look at is the physical memory of this period. And up until recently, the only memory was the Evergreen Mansion, which was John Garrett's house on Charles Street. Three thousand books and gold-plated fixtures, and I would say to any of your listeners who haven't been there, go there. But that was the memory of the period, and it was about seven or eight years ago, uh, Judge Thomas Ward, retired judge, bought two row houses by the B&O Museum and furnished them as if they were Irish railroad workers' houses. And the Feely family, uh, the father and the son, both worked for the B&O. As far as we can tell, they were not involved in the strike because they continued to work after the strike, in which most of the participants in the strike did not survive the strike. Either they were fired or they just walked away from the B&O in anger. But until recently, there was no physical representation of these thousands and thousands of workers, mostly immigrants, but in Baltimore. And you certainly see it at, at places like Fells Point. It was a huge community down there. No mention of all the black communities and free people who were down there. The Isaac Myers Museum has only recently brought his name into prominence. Right. And so I think as young people learn history, they learn it by seeing around them. And the people who control the country really want to have their version of history put out. And that's why labor history, civil rights history, women's history is generally left out of high school curriculums other than as social mobility. That is, the civil rights movement made it possible. There was an obituary just last week for a man, Ulysses Curry. Right. Died. And you and I have talked about the right. civil rights movement here. But he was a millionaire when he died. And so some people do well individually out of movements, just as some people have done well out of the union movement and have good salaries. But this book is about the, the unmentioned, the unnamed people who were really just striking, and they need to be remembered. So, so a couple of questions. Some people listening to this may say to themselves, well, wait a minute, though. Uh, you're describing this huge rail industry um, um, that without this railroad industry, there wouldn't be in America. Without this railroad industry, there wouldn't be um, the steel industry, as you That's wrote. Right. Uh, or there wouldn't be the Heinz and Company or all the other companies that uh, were built up ar- around the industry, that, that this built the American it economy. Made, made right? America. Made America what we know of as an industrial country. So Absolutely. what's the problem? Well, the problem is <laughs> – <laughs> the same problem we have here today, and, and one of the things that uh, made me start thinking about the book was participating in the occupation down at the uh, harbor. 
because we talk about the 99% and the 1%. And I was saying to the people at the harbor that you're on hallowed ground because this is where the railroad strikers went by in 1877. And the problem is not with the railroads. It's how the country was operated and what was going to go on as we were coming into the Gilded Age. And people today refer to today as the new Gilded Age. It was a period of enormous wealth and wealth which was boastful about it, felt no guilt about having enormous wealth. For example, John Garrett didn't feel guilty about being able to buy Evergreen House for his son while his workers lived in poverty, in shacks. And the row houses, for example, that the Irish Railroad Worker Shrine is, a, is an improvement, but it was certainly not a mansion with gold-plated uh, plumbing. And so I think the question is today, Mark, as you know, how is our country going to operate? And yes, industry has made great things, but the wealth that they have created is not shared equally. And that was exactly the issue of the 1877 strike. Because B&O was continuing to pay 10% dividends to its stockholders, profits were up. Even after the strike, they got the city of Baltimore to reimburse them for some fees that they had to pay to shippers whose shipments were delayed and boats in the harbor and stuff because like that. Because of the strike. So was, yeah, incredible corporate welfare. So but, so I want to go back to really understand and, and because you paint this picture in the part of the book you begin to talk about each union and then you talk about how the strike developed and what happened. I mean, because you're talking about a strike that not just that was not just paralyzed Baltimore, but paralyzed the nation. Mm-hmm. A strike that got very violent, workers being attacked, people killed. Um, Ten people killed right by City Hall, shot to death by the militia. And I think that's one of the things in the timeline that when these workers on on uh, in Camden Yards went out on strike on Monday and it began to spread – uh, the first step by the governor of West Virginia was to call in the militia there. And eventually the governor of Maryland called in the militia here. On the Friday of the strike, the 20th, two companies, one of them uh, by Reed Street and Howard in an armory, and the other one by what is now the main post office, by the shot tower. And the group, and they were called to go to Camden Yards to take a train to Cumberland. And the city rang a bell called Big Sam, which was in City Hall. And it was cast by the McShane Foundry Company, which is still in existence today. And uh, they were big crowds. People were just coming home from work. The bells rang. They thought there was some sort of a crisis. And so the militia, who were young people, many of them had relatives who were railroad workers uh, and were having economic hard times themselves, started moving from... East Baltimore, uh, across Fayette Street, up toward what is now, uh, you know, Holiday Place by City Hall. And at some point started firing into the crowd. And 10 people killed a 14-year-old newsboy, none of whom was involved in the strike, none of whom was a railroad worker. They described in that paper article was just brains oozing out. Yeah, Yeah. and wives coming into the morgue to see them, and it was heart-rending. And this young boy was out supporting his family, his widowed mother. So it then escalated, and federal troops were called in. And the idea in one of the debates at that time in the country was whether or not the United States had needed a strong central military. 
and the states' rights. It was just a supposed civil war and post-Reconstruction. Yeah. They forced the federal troops out of the South. That's and, right. But there was also right. a debate. There was such a debate that Congress had not paid the federal troops in three months. They were out. Most of the federal troops were out in the West uh, dealing with the Native Americans. But there was a sense that we needed to eliminate it and just go to a militia. And even after the strike, the papers editorialized that New York didn't need a federal troops and New Jersey didn't because they had militia and men needed to be upright and participate in society by joining the militia. And what they found here was that the militia was very much sympathetic with the strikers. By the time many of them got to Camden Yards, within a, and they were supposed to bivouac there. They couldn't be sent out, but they were protecting the station. A lot of them had relatives sneak in dress, uh, regular clothes. They would go in a bathroom or into a nearby saloon and change the clothes and just disappear. And so by the second week of the strike, there were ads in the sun trying to recruit more people to the National Guard. So it was a moment where everybody was affected. And as I said, one of the major issues was bringing in the federal troops from Fort McHenry. And I always tell this joke that the commander down there was William Barry, William Farquhar Barry. So there are two famous William Barrys in no history. No none, none whatsoever. <laughs> but one of the things that I found at the B&O archives was this Gatling letter. And I'd heard rumors about it, but this was a letter from the vice president of the Gatling Machine Gun Company to John Garrett saying – couple of our – And John Garrett was the – President of the BNO. Right. But saying, we're sorry we couldn't provide these to you right away during the strike, but a couple of loyal men and a couple of our guns, you won't have to worry about anything anymore. And so it was an elaborate handwritten letter on beautiful Gatling gun stationery, and, and the BNO Museum was kind enough to let me use this as an appendix in the book. But we right, right. found it down there after piling through. I was doing some research in the minutes of the B&O executives and letters that were sent in and correspondence from uh, John Garrett, the president of the B&O, to the president of the United States. And he addresses them as your excellency. <laughs> so <laughs> as I address you, Mark. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, right, right. Um, that's a new one for me. Um, so – this this moment, we, we have a, a strike where everybody and everything is paralyzed. The country is paralyzed. Yes. All shipping is stopped. Well, there are general strikes in St. Louis. There are all kinds of activities in Chicago, including uh, people who later became active in the Haymarket. So – right. And there are right. – unfortunately, people in San Francisco who take the opportunity to go and burn Chinese communities. That is, the – Social tumult goes off in many different directions as it is today. That is, people find a you know a target. And as I'm coming in here, I'm listening to the radio broadcasts of people massing along the border in Arizona to oppose any facility for immigrant children who are detained there. And you see the anti-immigrant feeling was just as strong in San Francisco as directed against the Chinese at that time, who have been brought over to build the western part of the railroads right? and who stayed. So at that moment when this was going on, um, and I, I just – because I really – people get a sense of how – what a huge – this is one of the most important moments in American history. And people read about what happened in 9-11. People read about it, what happened in some parts of the civil rights movement, parts of the civil war. But in terms of American history, this was a moment. You wish Steven Spielberg would make a movie about it because you know, it would be an epic. 
Because it was. I mean, this was a. It was that epic. It was very difficult. As I said in the book, I could have written a thousand page book because it goes off in so many different directions and so many people are involved in it and it affects so many people. So this was the, in, the, the workers fighting back against being attacked by the militia, striking across the country. And every other kind of thing I've ever read about it has always painted it as um, there's workers' riots destroying America. I mean, that, that's how it's portrayed in the I popular think world, right? One of the big mistakes is the railroad workers were very protective of the property of the railroads. It would often patrol the perimeter of railroad yards, for example. And one of the accusations was that the unemployed workers, for example, would come and sleep in the cars or would destroy stuff. And the, the workers and their unions took the position that if you acted responsibly, your employer would deal with you in a responsible way. And if you prov- provided temperance and, and, and um, civilized behavior, they would deal with you. It's very interesting. As the strike goes on, there's a meeting of the railroad uh, firemen out in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. And a young man gets up and says, this strike is not what workers want to do. We need to have a collaborative approach with our employers. We treat them like responsible American men. They'll treat us the same way. And, of course, that young fireman was Eugene V. Debs. And in right. 1894, uh, he learned a different lesson and obviously became a different person. But the early unions were benefit funds. They were based on uh, skill, responsibility, good work habits. And the strikers generally had those personalities. So how did they end up crushing the strike and what did they do after the strike was over? Well, it was easy to crush it. And I often think of the TV we watched during the Boston Marathon Massacre, during Mm -hmm. the bombing, where the city is under total lockdown. And Baltimore City and many other cities were totally under lockdown. You couldn't go anywhere. There were federal troops everywhere, militia everywhere, machine guns. And you'll see pictures, original graphics from the period in the book. Right. And so after a couple of weeks, the strike is pretty well broken. And there are a couple meetings, one at the Cross Street Market with some of the railroad workers. But the B&O management takes the position, we're not going to change. That 10% cut is going to happen. Once the strike is over, they begin to rethink. And you see in the book everywhere from everyone from Rutherford B. Hayes, the president of the United States on down, looks at this and says, we're in a different period of time. There needs to be a better way to deal with this. B&O started a pension plan, uh, began to loosen up in some conditions, but never wanted to recognize the union. There was another series of strikes in the 1880s, obviously the Pullman strike in 1894, but eventually the Railway Labor Act was the first federal law providing collective bargaining, but that was 1926. And so the arc of history bends slowly, but it does go toward protecting workers' rights. But that arc started here. Yes. In Baltimore in 1877. Yes, that was a major effort. So it was a a seminal moment, and it's unfortunately overlooked. The big thing about this is how underplayed it is in history and vilified in history. Yes. And I think what you've done here in this book is tell – it's interesting, a book we just did the other day about the civil rights movement by by, um, Charlie Cobb, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Absolutely. And – he was writing his book from the perspective of the uh, the civil rights workers and the f- 
farmers and workers of the South who rose up Absolutely. together from the 40s to the 60s. You're doing the same thing here, yes. seeing this from the perspective of the workers, because as you write in here, almost all the stuff about the workers has never been heard or written for. Very little was taken down. So you, I mean, you had to kind of build this up to find the workers' voices to bring their perspective on what this meant. Well, I think the comparison to the book by Charlie Cobb is exactly the same because how do young people today learn about the civil rights movement? What lessons do they draw from it? And as I said, if you watch the show on Freedom Summer or, and the show, at least where I watched it before, about the March on Washington, it's all about social mobility. And the March on Washington, the commentator was Oprah. And the lesson is participate in the civil rights movement and you all get rich. Freedom Summer, they had a little tag at the end saying that the state of Mississippi has the highest number of elected black officials in the country. And the economic conditions and the social conditions in Mississippi are probably as bad as any state in the country. Some of the worst in the nation. And um, so I hope nobody burns across on my lawn tonight. But And so what do you want people to learn from history, from labor history? And as I said, you see workers at Foxconn in exactly the same situation. And you and I have talked about this. Sometimes it's called the Big Bang Theory, is that workers just get fed up enough and they explode. Well, And this is that moment. This is one of those moments. Well, I don't think so because I think it's very clear that there was a lot of discussion before that. And you will see workers uh, in Pennsylvania trying to discuss industrial unionism. They're having meetings. There was uh, reports of strikers saying we should have waited a month because the harvest would have been in, we would have been in a better bargaining position. One of the things I thought was very interesting is there's a group that called Expeditionary Learning. And they're a private company, but they train, do workshops and stuff for high school teachers. And somehow, over the last several years, they picked the 1877 strike. And one of the projects that they did was to have the participants create imaginary dialogues about the strike. And I include a whole chapter in the book of examples of this. And so you'll have imaginary discussions between families and John Garrett over what's going on. And that that Hmm. fills in a gap uh, which doesn't exist otherwise. And so you can speculate. And I think, as you know, when you write history or read history, one of the dangers is people begin to attribute motives to people and reasoning and and will say, oh, they must have felt or I'm sure they thought. And I think that's really dishonest. You only know what you're told. And in this case, you don't know much firsthand about the strikers because many of them were illiterate, oral histories didn't exist, and there was just no way of recording what they thought. And as I said, you see histories like Charles Cobb's about the civil rights movement. There are people today who live through it. And who will tell you? And people will say, oh, but they're biased. Well, we're all biased. You know, we see what we see and we think what we think is important. This book is very biased. It's a pro-worker book. I put in uh, things that I think were important and frame it in a particular way. And I'm not bashful at all about saying we all do that. 